focus this morning is on verses 8 to 15. Children, here are your questions for this morning. The first one, pick A, B, or C. First, which does God like better, men and boys, B, women and girls, or C, that's a silly question. He loves both in Christ. Two, what are some things that both male and female Christians do? Three, are men, women, and children all an important part of the ministry of the church? And four, what kind of men should be leaders, pastors, elders, and deacons in God's church? First Timothy chapter 2, I'll begin reading in verse 1. First of, all, first of all, then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, I am telling the truth, I am not lying, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Likewise, also, that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel, with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Almighty God, we do ask that you would help us to see clearly this morning. You just sang in the last stanza that you would send your Holy Spirit to help us see. And Lord, in seeing, we pray that you would help us to see your, to see you better, to see your glory better, but also to know your will and to readily submit to that which you'll teach us. And so we pray that you would minister to us through the power of your word and with the help of the Holy Spirit that you would help the preacher and help all of us who would hear this morning as we come to you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, at the outset, I suppose I ought to address anyone who might be potentially offended by what we just read and by what I'm about to say. I think of three groups. The first one would be feminists. And what I mean by feminists are people who don't want any distinction made in any way between men and women 
in their calling in life, in their offices in life, especially their offices in church, that those who deny any distinction in the created order regarding position and things like that in society, family, and the church. What I'm about to say and what Paul has said and what scripture says may be an offense to people who are feminists. I also have to recognize that it may be an offense to those who are chauvinists. Chauvinists may find what I say pandering and compromising. Uh, some men have a distorted view of the biblical view of headship and leadership, not only in their households, but in the church as well. Uh, some men are highly offended by any statement that a woman has any particular worth in teaching scripture or encouraging or having any insights. I think of a situation where I was with two churchmen one time and I simply mentioned to them that I had learned a lot from my wife in the realm of Bible and theology. I wasn't ashamed of that. I mean, I had already been to seminary. I didn't learn everything from my wife. But they walked away from me like I had eaten six cloves of garlic or worse. They literally turned on their heels and walked away from me as if I had said something utterly offensive. I'm going to tell you today I don't fall in either camp. I am not a feminist. I'm not a chauvinist, I can assure you. I know many strong and godly women that I appreciate deeply that have had an impact on my life, that have great ministry in the church. I look out at our congregation, very thankful for all the women that we have here. I have a strong, solid wife. I have four daughters that are that I'm very, very proud of, and I know you can name people as well, and so I could never be accused of being a chauvinist. I also appreciate many, many godly men who've had a tremendous impact on my life, who've been exemplary for me, who minister well in the church, who are good husbands to their wives if they're married, good fathers to their children if they have children. And so I respect entirely men and women I assure you what I'm trying to do this morning is to best understand and apply what's being said here. I should mention I have three sons too that I'm very proud of that I expect to be leaders in their potential families in a godly way and I expect them to serve well in their churches wherever they may be. And I know for you men as well, I appreciate our men here. We have tremendous men in our church. Unlike many churches, we're super blessed with a lot of godly men who serve well. So deeply appreciate that. There's a third group that would certainly be offended, and I call them gender benders. And I don't mean to use that term in any kind of offensive way. What I mean by gender benders are people who believe that there's more than two genders, or that they believe that people can pick or choose their gender. They can pick or choose whether they want to be a man or whether they want to be a female. They twist things. I would say that we are a gender-affirming church, but not in the way that the world says that they're gender-affirming. shows you how twisted terminology and language can be used. They use this term gender affirming as if they're going to affirm what everybody wants to say about themselves. If one day they want to be a girl, they can be a girl. Next day, if they want to be a boy, they can be a boy. We are gender affirming in this way. We affirm two genders. The Bible only recognizes two genders, male and female. In fact, none of any of this would make sense if, if 
we're dealing with people who are blurry on their gender. Scripture is not going to give moral directives to people whose lives are aberrant before God because there's a major issue that has to be dealt with first. First of all, original sin. Secondly, the sin of thinking that we can turn over the created order. My simple point is that Scripture only confirms only confirms two genders. Again, I'm here to best interpret and apply Scripture so that ultimately the feminist argument, the chauvinist argument, the gender bender argument will not ultimately be with me, though I hold these positions, it would be with Scripture. It would be with Scripture. Now, when it comes to the roles of gender, I'm not going to make any apologies for what's said in Scripture. I'm not going to apologize for what the Bible says. I'm not going to apologize for what Paul says under the inspiration of Scripture because that would be apologizing for what God says. Now, I will say uh, that there is a focus here in the passage, and the ultimate end of what Paul's getting at here is the spread of the gospel. To this end, salvation. Remember, that's how the prayers went last time, that, that the gospel would, would spread through the people of God. And I would suggest then that when Christians act Christ-like, we're going to more effectively spread the gospel. And so Paul is, in essence, saying the church has to have it right in order to be effective in this fallen, broken world. If we don't get it right, even in the area of sexuality, we've got it wrong. So that's behind what Paul is saying here. What do I mean by Christians being Christ-like? And for this, I mean both men and women. Uh, if we're Christ-like, we certainly may be hated by unbelievers. But there is an attractiveness of Christ-likeness in the same way there's an attractiveness of Christ himself. What attracts believers to the person of Christ? What attracts somebody whose heart's being worked on to the person of Christ? I want to mention a couple of things. What makes Christ all together lovely? Certainly his glory as the second person of the Trinity and certainly his, his personality and his person as fully human. But what are some attributes that are familiar to us that are things that men and women alike should imitate. We'll see some parallels in our passage, but Jesus was holy. Jesus was holy, and that should draw the sensitive heart and mind to the person of Jesus. He was holy. He was prayerful. He knew his dependence upon the Father while he walked the earth. He was gentle, a gentle Savior. He wasn't afraid to rebuke sin. He wasn't afraid to confront Hypocrites. He wasn't afraid to turn over tables in the temple, but he's a gentle savior. Not harsh. A humble servant. <clears throat> this is also important. His appeal was not outward. He had nothing in his physical appearance that would draw anyone to him in particular. Put to rest those romantic depictions of Jesus with the dreamy eyes and the flowing hair. There's nothing in Jesus' physical appearance that would draw anything to him. It was all who he was from his heart and his actions followed. He wasn't a glamour Jesus. 
He was the Son of God, pure and holy and righteous, and appealing to hearts that long for holiness and righteousness and purity. And so I'm going to suggest that in that sense, all believers, no matter what their gender is, should imitate, imitate the Lord Jesus Christ. So I think that's the key for men and women, boys and girls, to follow Christ according to the call to follow him in living lives in a godly fashion that, that make people recognize that we're disciples, followers of Jesus. I know that's a lot of background. As we enter into our passage about the difference in the place of, in church in particular between men and women, we want to recognize that there are things that overlap. Obviously, men and women are to be godly, to, they're to be pure, they're to pursue holiness. Men and women are to pray. Both men and women are to pray. They're to be peacemakers, modest, and teachable. Those are things that are a part of our character, but there is a distinction within the church on how those things pan out. So the interest here primarily is in public worship and leadership in the church. Obviously, these things go out from here. Obviously, these things have to be in place in the family here and go out from here, but our interest this morning is the church. It does get a little confusing, I'm not going to lie, but it's not because God confuses things. Sin distorts things. Sin confuses things. And so one of the things that Paul is addressing to Timothy is undoubtedly some problems that have arisen in the church over gender roles and gender issues. And there are problems in both camps. For the men, I would summarize it that they may be being irresponsible and troublesome. For the women, they might be being aggressive and troublesome. And that's a bad combination. I've heard some people blame feminism for problems in the church. Feminism for problems in the church. Others say that, that they're giving men an excuse by taking roles that men are supposed to have, but the problem is there's problems in the church, there's problems in making the proper distinctions. And it may be partially overly aggressive women, and it may be wimpy men, but we want to understand what the Bible says. So what are Christian men to look like? First of all, men are to take the lead, take responsibility, again, first in the home and then in the church, according to God's design. In a moment, I'll put the things in the positive, but let's look at the negative. First of all, you have men who are corrupt. They're living in sin. They're letting sin control their lives, or they're letting the desires of their hearts control their lives. You have men who are shirking responsibility, not taking responsibility to show headship in their homes, not taking responsibility to show leadership in the church. You have men who are troublemakers and divisive and they're contentious, and so Paul has to address those things, and he does address those things directly. Verse 8. I desire that in every place the men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Men, holy hands. Men, are you holy? Are you 
striving for holiness. We're not talking about perfection, but is godliness the number one thing that you're pursuing in your life? That's symbolic in scripture, clean hands and a pure heart. Psalm 24, 3 to 4. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. Men, does that describe you? Does that describe you? The pursuit of holiness, the pursuit of purity, and then lifting up holy hands in prayer. That's symbolic of what goes on in worship. It may be indirect, but this is talking about praying and worship and lifting up holy hands to God, showing dependence, but also pleading with God on behalf of the church, on behalf of the people of God, not only on behalf of themselves. Prayerful men in private and in public and peacemakers, not cantankerous, not troublemakers, not divisive, having the right attitude of humility before God, having the right demeanor, the Christ-like demeanor, that's what true leadership displays. That's a true manhood there. To be peacemakers and not troublemakers. I'd say that has to be both in private and in public. It's such a tragedy when you know a man who is not seeking to live a holy life, that he's not prayerful, that he is a troublemaker and cantankerous. In public, he might be a shining individual in church. But then you find out at home that he's not so holy, that he's not so kind. I knew too many stories. I know a woman who married a pastor saw her years later and she was grieving. I think they finally divorced, but she had to sit under the pastor's preaching. She sat there knowing that he had, he had a pornography addiction. He was not a good husband and not a good dad. And she had to sit there and listen to him preach for year after year. And so that's why I mentioned public and private because it's taking place, first of all, in the heart. And then in the most close quarters of the home and then in the church, and that will trickle out into public as well. Well, now the women. Godly women. Never underestimate the value of women who are following the Lord. Jesus Christ himself had numerous women that were involved in the ministry. If you read the gospel, there's many women there with Jesus, sharing in the ministry. If you look at the Apostle Paul, who's been called a chauvinist, a misogynist, and everything under the sun because of his positions, if you read what he says, he has the highest dignity for women. He mentions numerous women involved in his ministry. And so there's no diminishing of women here at all, but because of some problems that can develop, Paul has to address them. Here are some of the problems that some of the women were apparently flaunting their femininity. And so when we read here about arraying themselves in appropriate attire, 
we usually run to not being sensual, not, not dressing inappropriately, we might say. And that certainly is a part of what this is about. Absolutely. This issue in particular that Paul mentions is another sort of issue. The women in that day would braid their hair. There's nothing wrong with braiding hair, but they would braid their hair with all kinds of things in their hair, little items and things of gold and spangles and all kinds of things in their hair. They would wear fancy jewelry, pearls, and gold, and they would flaunt that in the congregation. And the problem was both, both the physical allure of not dressing modestly and the distraction of seeing someone who is obviously wealthy does just that, distracts from the purpose that people gather together in church. And so Paul is saying, women, don't draw attention to yourself by your outward appearance. That's not what this is about. They also had a problem, apparently, of discontent with their place in church. Again, trying to usurp men's roles or indirectly giving men an excuse. But, but women of God, and here comes the positive, are to be attractive. To be attractive in the way that God finds attraction. The condition of the heart, the condition of the soul, the condition of the attitude, all those things, the demeanor. Beautiful in God's sight. The word that's used here is cosmeo, that we get, our word, we get our word cosmetics from, but it's not talking about makeup. It's not talking about clothes. It's talking about adorning yourselves with Christ-like beauty. Now, it's not saying that you go out all disheveled and stuff like that. I don't even need to go down that road. But he's setting the focus to godliness, Second, be active. Be, be very active. Good works is the way Paul puts it here. Be involved in those good works. Adorn uh, also that women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control, not with braided hair and gold or pearls or costly attire, but with what is proper for women who profess godliness with good works. Let your good works shine. Let your good work shine. But understand that there is an appropriate place in the church to exercise your gifts and to do those works. And then be apt to learn. To learn in quietness, it says. Be apt to learn. Be teachable. Be discerning. A woman, just like a man, should test the things that are coming out of the pulpit. A woman, just like a man, should test the things that are coming out of a Sunday school class. Learn in quiet. And, and this is in particular with reference to having authority over men. And so we have to make sure that we keep this in the right place, that it has to do with not pursuing the pastorate, with not trying to be a teacher and instructor of men. That's not the place for women, according to God's word. But make sure that we understand 
that women are not always to be completely silent in the church. Our women are intuitive. Our women are deeply spiritual. Some of our women know the Bible like the back of their hand. And they bring good insights into our Sunday school classes and into our Bible studies, not just the women's Bible studies. And so we value women. Paul values women. Jesus valued women. God values women. But he has set an order in place. And that's where Paul goes next. That's where Paul goes next. Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. Well, let me try to unpack that a little bit here because Paul takes us back to the created order. And we need to understand that God, before sin came into the world and complicated things, that God created order. And Adam was to be the head and Eve was to be his helpmate. They were complementary before the fall. But then the fall comes along. What happens in the fall? Sin distorts and destroys everything. And in fact, this turns everything on its head. God gave the order man messed it up put it this way serpent comes into the garden as if he's authority over god imagine that makes a promise to eve in contradiction to what god had said eve is deceived she's fooled she sees the fruit is good for eating, but she also knows that it's going to open up her mind and her eyes and her heart. She's going to be like God. And so, so she takes it upon herself to willfully sin against God by listening to the serpent. But then what does Eve do? You know the story. Eve goes to Adam as if she's an authority or at least an expert on the goodness of this fruit. And Adam, you need to try this fruit because it's awesome. And he, she tempts Adam. Adam certainly is deceived to a certain degree, but he's highly culpable because he absolutely knew the truth about what God said about the fruit on the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He absolutely knew. He had taught Eve. Eve knew too, but Adam was the one who's even more culpable for the sin that took place. And then God confronts them. But we recognize that the whole order was turned on its head by the sinful actions that were allowed to take place in the garden. That ability that man had to sin, he took advantage of that when the reverse should have happened. Now, this is somewhat maybe biblically speculative, we know that this is all a part of God's plan of redemption, but on the ground level, we have to look at what man and woman did. This is not original with me. I like what one person said. Adam should have slain and thus judged the serpent in carrying out the mandate of Genesis 1.28. Have dominion. 
over creation. Adam should have slain and thus judged the serpent in carrying out the mandate. The tree in Eden seems to have served as a judgment tree, the place where Adam should have gone to discern between good and evil, and thus where he should have judged the serpent as evil and pronounced judgment on it as it entered the garden. That's a man named Beal. That's his argument. And I think that's a legitimate argument that Adam was the one who should have taken responsibility immediately. Should have never let the serpent come into the garden. Should have protected Eve and watched over her and cared for her and taken his responsibility instead of shirking his responsibility and let her engage with this serpent who is the devil. And so Adam should have submitted to God as God is his head. Eve should have submitted to Adam had he had taken responsibility as her head, and neither one of them should have given in or submitted to the work of the devil. But Paul's concern is that issue of order. Adam is the one who needs to take responsibility. Leadership in the economy of God or in the way things work in the church. Men are to take responsibility. So they're given that office of elder, teacher, pastor, to guard the truth, to guard the gospel. That's part of their duty. And so with all that, man's sin doesn't change God's created order of headship and authority. In the family or in the church, sin complicates it. So the lesson is this, don't take on roles that don't belong to you and don't shirk responsibilities, your God-given responsibilities. I have to address this because it's the most difficult passage probably in 1 Timothy and it's definitely the most difficult verse in our passage today and I won't spend too long on it partly because I don't, I have to admit, I don't entirely understand it. Yet she will be saved through childbearing if they continue in faith and love and holiness with self-control. There is some connection with Eve there, but Paul is addressing the women of his day. This childbirth passage, you don't find a lot of help reading commentaries. They all make declarations. Some are very adamant about what they believed about it, and others are saying, well, we don't quite exactly know what's going on. Here's what we do know for sure when it says... When it says that women will be saved through childbearing, it does not mean that they'll be regenerated, saved from their sins through bearing children or even by virtue of being a woman. It's not what it means. People are only saved by the grace of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's true for men and women alike. I think this is an exhortation to stay away from the temptation to break out of the God-ordained order, to trust and obey the Lord and submit to him. For women not to pursue things that aren't in the realm that God's ordained for them, particularly in public worship and authority in the church. My take is this term on childbirth is more equivalent to womanhood. 
So a godly woman is saved by the grace of God through the Lord Jesus Christ, and she will fulfill that calling in being a faithful disciple of Christ according to, to the design that God has given for women in Christ. And when women try to break out of that, and when the church tries to break out of that, what God has ordained then, there's trouble. Well, back to the concern about the spread of the gospel that Paul seems to have in mind here. Again, if the church is careful to do what it's called to do and not get all out of whack, we'll be much more effective. We'll say that if the church loses its biblically ordained balance into either feminism or chauvinism, there's going to be a problem. It's not only going to be problematic, in some cases it will be a severe problem. Secondly, if the church caters to the idea that there's no distinction in position in family or church, the church is out of God's will. And third, if the church bows to gender twisting that's being forced upon our culture and churches as well, if the church is going to bow to gender twisting, the church has clearly apostatized and is out of God's will. I'm not trying to win points here. I know I said it towards the beginning, but I'm very thankful for the godly men and the godly women in our church. That's a blessing that we experience here. And so I exhort us to stay focused on the kingdom of God, on serving Christ in our different capacities. Closing with this, let our men be men. This is not a machismo thing. This is not a machismo thing. It's a Christ-like thing. It's a godliness thing. And let our women be women. This is not an I am woman, hear me roar thing. This is a Christ-like thing. This is a godliness thing. We've been tremendously blessed as a church with godly men and women. And may we continue to receive that blessing of God's grace to us, never taking it for granted, never giving in to the pressures that we might feel, but honoring God in all that we do and all that we say as men and women in God's church. Let's pray. Father in heaven, this is your church. And we readily recognize that we under your authority and with the authority that you express to us in your word, we have no business in designing the church, our doctrines, or anything according to our own wills, our own desires, even our own understanding outside of your scripture. Lord, you've given us your design in creation from before the fall. We grieve that fall, the fall into sin has so grossly distorted so much of it. We look at our culture and we recognize how distorted our whole sense of se sexuality is in our country. We grieve over that. You've instructed your church in what is right and what is good and what's holy. We pray that you would help us to uphold that as a church right here at Covenant. And we pray that our men would serve well as godly leaders, pursuing holiness, 
leading in the things that need to be led in church, being peacemakers and comforters in the body of Christ here. Especially pray for the men who have been called to elder and deacon according to their offices, that you would help them. The great challenges that they faced in their calling. We also pray for our women and we thank you for the tremendous gifts that you've given us in our women here at Covenant. We thank you for our thriving women's ministry. We thank you for the fellowship that the women have among each other. We pray that that would be built stronger. Lord, help us all to, first and foremost, be followers of Christ Jesus. And then to be happy, satisfied, and delight in the callings that you've given us, and the positions that you've given us in life, that we would always seek to honor and glorify you. And we come to you in the name of the head of the church, our Savior Jesus Christ. Amen.